I presume each and every one of us enjoy the privilege of studying our Bibles. And this morning, I'd like to focus your attention for a few moments to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And I'd like for us to spend some time studying with the Savior. Now, preachers sometimes, like the members, tend to evaluate sermons which they have heard. Some of them stick in our minds. Some of them have such meaning to us. We say, now that's one of the best lessons that I have ever heard. And I suppose each of us would refer to this study that we're going to do as being the crown jewel of the Lord's sermons. That doesn't mean that everything that the Lord taught was not great and wonderful. But when you look at all the sermons which the Lord preached, this one has an outstanding nature to it. I want you to think for just a few moments with me about studying with the Savior. For instance, imagine the richness of sitting down and thinking with our Lord as he spoke in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I cannot imagine how rich of a lesson that would be for the Lord to begin with those Old Testament prophets going through the Psalms and to say, this applies to me. To study with our Savior is indeed a blessing. This one sermon focuses on the practical needs with a focus on genuine faith. And what I'm referring to is the lesson of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing, for the next several weeks on Sunday morning, what we're going to do is to take section by section the great lessons that are found in this Sermon on the Mount. Because in it is contained some great, wonderful teachings which I need to know, which you need to know, so that we can please God. We're going to look at four things in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at the Lord's compassion. We're going to look at His capability or capacity to teach. We're going to look at the country in which this occurred. And then finally, to look at the crowds that were surrounding him and their nature and their interest. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. I want to read it slowly. I want us to look at it and carefully consider it. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he'll begin the Beatitudes. Let's begin, first of all, with this idea of the Lord's compassion. Seeing the multitude. For most of us, if we were there present and we were in the audience, we might say, look at the number of people here. My guess is this morning there's probably about... 320 people here. That's my guess. But with the Lord many times, it wasn't just hundreds, but it was thousands of people. 
They gathered around him to be able to hear what he had to say and for other reasons. But when the Lord saw a multitude, what did he see? This multitude of people in front of him, what did his eyes behold? Well, you know, if I go to the Bible, I can find that phrase, seeing the multitude, occurring several times. If I go to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Matthew records, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The Lord could look out and see this vast number of people, but the Lord loved those people. He cared about what happened to them and what kind of circumstances they were in in life. Get to chapter 15 and verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me these three days and have had nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Let me tell you, these people who stayed with the Lord stayed with him for three days without eating any food. I want you to just imagine that for just a moment. Because it won't be too long, in about probably 20 minutes, some of you will begin to do this right here. You know why? We tend to think, oh, the lesson's going to go a little bit long. Three days, they've ate nothing. But the Lord saw these people and he saw their needs. Compassion occurs when one observes another in a pitiful condition. You look at the situation they're in and you feel for them. Well, think with me for just a moment as we study with the Savior. Consider some people who are in need of compassion. Those who are suffering a physical disease. I don't know everybody's situation here. I do know some. But in a crowd and a multitude of just a few hundred people. We have some here who are suffering some physical diseases. And if you go to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Mark 1 verse 41, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Whether it was leprosy or blindness, there are people who are afflicted with physical ailments. Our Lord's able to look out and see those people, and He cares about them, has compassion upon them. But you know, it wasn't just that. The Lord saw people who were suffering with a financial problem, they didn't have enough money to pay their debts. They were in a situation where they were obligated to someone else and they didn't know where they were going to be able to relieve their obligations. Matthew 18, 27, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Such a great debt. I don't know everybody's situation here this morning, nor do I need to, but... I would venture to say that in our audience there's some of you who are struggling 
with obligations greater than you are able to meet at this point. But you know, the Lord also saw people suffering a spiritual disaster. Just to be honest with you, their life was a spiritual mess. If you'll remember in John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria, goes to Jacob's well, and while the disciples are gone into the city to buy food, there's a woman who meets him there, and he asks for water from her. That introduces a conversation. And you get to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Here's a woman in great spiritual need. Her life is a moral mess. But you see, the Lord could look out at that multitude and see people suffering physically. He could see people suffering financially. He could see people suffering spiritually. Because the Lord cared about people. What was the solution? If you go to Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, Mark writes... And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. You see, the solution, whether it was physical illness, whether it was financial difficulties, or whether it was sin sickness, the answer was teaching. Someone said, oh, but no, 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 no. You have to understand physical illness is something outside of the Lord's teaching. No, it's not. Yes, the Lord healed people physically, but you know He healed them of one disease and those people got sick and died after that. The Lord taught us that this life with all that's in it is not all there is. That there is a life to come. And the Lord also addressed sickness and death and the life of Lazarus. The Lord also dealt with financial obligations as well. About how a man, for instance, in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34, might look and say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what are we going to be able to put on? And he comes to the conclusion in verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, teaching was the solution for the multitude in whom the Lord had compassion and whom He cared about. I heard it said while I was studying for this lesson, I couldn't help not put it in. Bless their heart, they don't know any better. The crowd, the multitude, the people that are before the Lord, He is looking at them and we would say He's blessing their heart. They need help. And the Lord, as He saw the multitude. The second thing is 
he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. The Lord saw them. He saw their need. He had compassion. And so he provided their teaching. But you see what it is. The Lord knows us better than we even know ourselves. In John 2 and verse 25, John records, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he himself knew what was in man. The Lord is our creator. He made us. He made our minds. He knows the way they work. The Lord knows how you think. The Lord knows how I think. And He is able to address our every need. He has the capacity to communicate with the simplest to the scribe. You know, I fall in that simple category. The kind that I need somebody to communicate in a way that I can understand it. And when you go to Mark 12, verse 37, the last phrase is, And the common people heard him gladly. The Lord was able to communicate so the average man could be able to understand what needed to be done. How could he do that? Well, he used illustrations from everyday life. Whether it was sowing the seed or tending sheep or fishing or building. I could go on and on. The Lord used everyday illustrations that we can understand. He had a clarity of message or as we would put it in our language today, if you're going to use an idiom, he cut to the chase. He didn't beat around the bush and say, well, maybe we should postulate this or think that. No, the Lord said, here's the way it is. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. And it, so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as a scribe's. The Lord spoke so that people could know this was what was right versus what was wrong. Habakkuk was told to write a vision, make it plain on tablets, that he who runs may read it. Make it so plain, so clear, that people can understand exactly what the Lord was saying. And he did. Which is going to lead me to the third part of our lesson. And that is the country. I really believe when we did our vacation Bible school this past week, as everybody began to volunteer for the various parts of our learning centers, I thought somebody is going to volunteer for the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody did. For that reason, I decided I'm going to speed up the lessons that I had been working on to move them up just following Vacation Bible School. All the great events that occurred around the Sea of Galilee. I think about the Lord going on that mount, which is known as the Mount of Beatitudes, going up there sitting down and teaching. And I think about the people. I keep thinking about the people because a message is usually crafted for a specific audience. If I'm going to preach here on Sunday morning, I will address a lesson differently than if I were going to go to Selkirk, Canada and deal with a different audience. I wouldn't make reference to many of the 
localized things. It wouldn't talk about our country and make illustrations with regards to it. If you were going to go into a mission area, maybe into India or Africa somewhere, and you were going to preach the gospel to people who had never known about the truth, you would have to craft your message differently. Let me point out to you, these are poor people. They lived off the land. They were not people with great wealth put back so they could been able to enjoy life for many years. These are poor people. They had a distinctive accent. That is, people knew them by the accent of their language. In Mark 14 and verse 17, when Jesus was ident- or Peter was identified as being an associate of Jesus, the lady said, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. In just a little less than two months, a group of us will be going to Selkirk for a week's uh, campaign there. And I already know what's going to be said. I've been there too many times. You'll go up and you'll knock on the door and you'll say, Hello, I'm here representing the Selkirk Church of Christ. And they say, You're not from here, are you? Will you talk a little more? We want to hear your accent. And I say, Eh? <laughs> you don't have one? No, I don't do that. But that's what I think. But you see, These people had an accent that was discernible. But even more than that, they were not distinguished for having a history of prophets or educated people. Let me illustrate to you. John 7 and verse 52, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. This is not a place known. If you want to talk about where you're going to have the distinguished prophets, you've got to go to Judah. In Acts chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the apostles, many of them Galileans, are speaking with other languages. And here's what it says. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are these not all who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? You don't exactly expect Galileans to speak multiple languages. These are poor people. They're people living hand to mouth. Yet they are receptive people. In John chapter 4 verse 45 it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. These are poor people, but they're, they're an open-minded, open-heart people. The country. Jesus had a similar message in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 17. I know it's different. Some people say, well, it's the same one. No, it's not, because on this case, he went up on a mountain and he sat in Luke chapter 6 and verse 17. So he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd. He's standing, and now he's on the plain. He's on a level place, not on a mountain. The area is known for its acoustics. You know, here in just a small auditorium, We have a microphone and an amplifier to be able to make it where everyone can hear. 
And yet on the Mount of Beatitudes where it's located, there's a natural draft in which the wind is able to take the voice and carry it all the way for a good distance to the point where a person can stand and speak and not just hundreds but thousands of people can hear. It's amazing. The country folks are more often to stop from work to listen to something important. Let me move quickly now to the last part because this is where I think we start seeing some application to ourselves. It says that the disciples came and he taught them. You'd be very remiss if you're studying this to not realize that the message was to the disciples. However, it's not just the disciples that are listening. It's the multitudes that are out there listening. And most of those who are in this crowd, this multitude, comprise different attitudes and different reasons for being present. For instance, this morning, many of you are here because you came to worship the Lord. That was your motivation, that was your purpose. But I dare say that there's some of you who are here, perhaps a husband, perhaps a wife, because your husband or your wife said, I want you to go to church with me. You're not here because you want to be. You're here because you sort of got to be. There's some of you perhaps are teenagers. Your mom and your daddy told you this morning, you get up, you get out of bed, you get your clothes, we are going to church. You perhaps whined and moaned and said you wanted to stay in bed or other such things as that, and you're here because your mom and your daddy made you come here. And it's possible that some of you are here this morning just out of habit. You got up and you just said, okay, it's Sunday morning, it's the day we go to church, and there's different people with different attitudes. In John 7 and verse 12, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good, others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. John 12, verses 20 and 21. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These people wanted to know. Some will listen to our Lord, and some others will say, I'm not interested, and it'll just go by them. In John 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You stay in my word, you listen to my word, you're my disciples. Verse 48 of chapter 12, He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken the same will judge him in the last day. It's all about the words. Studying with Jesus. Listening to these words. Some will just take them and absorb them. Others will say, I'm not interested in them. In Acts 17, verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. It may be that some of you are here, and you've been thinking, I don't know. Maybe there's something to this. 
maybe I need to listen a little bit further. Well, I'm going to suggest to you there were four different types of people that I know of in that crowd. There was first the consecrated. That's the disciples. Now, lest we misunderstand, I want to distinguish for you the difference between a disciple and an apostle. A disciple is a person who's a learner, who's a pupil, who's trying to get something spiritually, mentally, intellectually from the Lord. But Luke 6 and verse 13 makes clear the distinction between the two. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. All the learners are called disciples. You and I are disciples of the Lord. But only those twelve were apostles. These were people who were looking for the kingdom. For them it was something in the future. For us it's something already present. For instance, in Luke 23, 51 about Joseph, it says, He consented not to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself also was waiting for the kingdom of God. Just like if you go to John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, and it says about Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he says, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. We've been looking for him, and we found him. But you see, faithful people, good people, consecrated people need instruction. Teach a wise man and he'll even be wiser. We need the Sermon on the Mount. Second kind of group of people were the curious. People who want to know what's going on and in fact, they're amazed by the miracles and they're somewhat entertained by them. Much like we might be with a magician. The New Testament writers record this. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He says it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but that's what we want to see. John 6, verse 30, They said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Notice that word, What sign will you perform? It's a show. Or you come to Luke chapter 23, verse 8. Then when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped some miracle be done by him. Herod looked at Jesus as an entertainer, someone for his pleasure, his delight. Were there people in that crowd who were curious? Most certainly there were. Third group is those who were covetous. Now to covet something means you want it. You want it badly. You see something someone else has to offer and you want that. And some were only interested in what Jesus was offering. Let me give you a little bit of background of John 6. Jesus has fed the multitude. 
But Jesus has changed the subject from the bread that they physically ate to his being the bread of heaven, comparable to the manna. When Jesus began to talk about spiritual things, a lot of the people's attitude changed. John 6 and verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. All you were interested in was the food that I was providing. You're not interested in the spiritual things. People like that today. When people call the church every day wanting us to give them food. But when you talk to them about a spiritual aspect, they lose interest very quickly. I want you to look at the context with me. I've not even mentioned Matthew chapter 4. You can back up just a few verses to chapter 4 verse 23. And here's what you read. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. What was the primary emphasis which you see in verse 23? The Lord was teaching. Why are they bringing people to the Lord? They're wanting healing. Many are not interested in only but what the Lord is going to provide for them. But a fourth group of the people were corrupt. Their view of what was right versus what was wrong, their view of how you please God had been corrupted. In fact, I want you to notice Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. This is the context. They have a perverted sense of righteousness. And you can see the Lord explaining that to them in the verses that follow verse 20 where he said, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Or it was said, but I say to you. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. But what matters is what the Lord says. And so he says to them, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness will not get you there. They had this idea that these outward acts, devoid of any inward devotion, was acceptable. And whether it was the alms they gave, the prayers they prayed, or the fastings that they did, all they were concerned is that everybody look at me and think that that makes me spiritual. And so if I'm going to give, I'm going to sound a trumpet so everybody sees that I'm giving something. 
If I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray a long prayer and I'm going to use some real big words and I'm going to impress people. Or when I fast, I'm going to disfigure my face and let everybody think that I'm really, really devout. And you see, the Lord says that's not real righteousness. They were corrupted. And not everybody is going to go to heaven. Well, that's a real stark wake up. In fact, the Lord says in verse 13 of chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus said, You think that this corrupted sword of righteousness is going to get you there and it won't. Studying with the Savior. Are we hearing what He says or what we want to hear? When we go through this week by week and we listen to the Lord, are we only hearing the parts we want to hear or are we letting the Lord speak in our lives? Are we evaluating our belief and our behavior in light of His teaching? You see, if we're going to be better people, we're going to have to study with the Savior and we're going to have to let Him change who we are into something better. And here's where we're going to end for today. Are you aware that this can affect your eternity because the Lord taught us who are His disciples to make more disciples. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The Lord told us to make disciples, and we do that by baptizing and by teaching. And what we teach people to do is to keep, to observe all those things which Jesus has commanded, studying with our Savior. And here's the question this morning. Are you a disciple? If you've not yet been baptized, you're not one of the disciples. You're not a follower of the Lord. But before you can be baptized properly, you've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You've got to be willing to confess that before men. To turn your back on your sins, to repent of them. Then you can be baptized properly. Here's our problem many times. Oh, we are the disciples of the Lord. We are the learners but we've allowed ourselves to be deceived by the devil and we have sometimes listened to him rather than listening to the Lord. And when our lives are not like they ought to be, then we need to correct it by coming back and asking the Lord's forgiveness. If you need to respond this morning, please come while we stand and while we sing.